I have uh, been reading a book, and it was the source of what I'm doing today, kind of reminding us of where we are globally and in this country, locally, even in the church. Where are we? But the book was written by a Christian author that many of you are probably familiar with, Erwin Lutzer. He is a pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, and he wrote this book called We Will Not Be Silenced. I hope that you remember the title and you make an effort to see if you can get a copy of this book. We will not be silenced. He's talking about the church. And yet, have we not already been? We're going to be exploring some of those things today, but it's not just the church that I want to focus on, um, although that's important and that's what we will focus on ultimately. But I want to share some thoughts that's sort of put together from my own way of thinking what it is that we're going through and how did we get here and what can we do about it. Before we get started in that topic, I want to bring to your attention a couple of things. First of all, I'd like to read a portion of the Old Testament Scripture that was recorded for us by the prophet Daniel. You may recall that Daniel was in exile. He had spent nearly 70 years by the writing of this particular thing that we're going to be looking at in his great prophetic book. Seventy years in exile, and he's wondering why things have happened as they have happened. And in this portion of Scripture that we'll be reading, he's lifting up a prayer to his God, to our God, on behalf of his people and himself. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, and you can read along with me, starting from verse 4. Where the elderly spokesman of God begins this prayer, this very personal prayer, this very intense prayer, this very important prayer. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Before we continue, keep in mind that this is Daniel, the one who God said was a righteous man. He's identifying with the sins of all the people of Israel. He's owning those sins as his own. He continues in verse 6, he says, Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. I want to stop here again just for a moment and remind us, all of us, 
that if you were to really apply what is being prayed by Daniel the prophet, it would not be wrong for you to substitute the names of your city, the names of your country, the names of your leaders in this place that he puts with regard to his own people and place and country. Righteousness belongs to you. And we are of shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Maine, to the inhabitants of Searsport, and to all of the United States, those near and far off. And onward, Daniel continues, he says in verse 8, O Lord, to us belong the shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. You have not obeyed, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before by us, or set before us by his prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done in Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before our Lord, our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. My God, for your city and your people are called by your name. What a remarkable prayer that is. David prayed many ways in the same fashion over the things that were troubling him. And all through the Scripture we find, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the prayers of the believers, the saints of God, who have committed themselves to serving God, recognizing the fact that they as a people, and themselves included, have sinned against the great God. And there is no reason why God should not judge because of such sin. But the prayer of the saints of God has always, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us 
to recognize that sin in our lives and then to repent from those things. And as we do so, listen to our prayer, O God, hear our prayer. Listen, O Lord, to our petition and grant our requests for mercy. And he reminds the Lord in this prayer that God is indeed merciful. So how did we get where we are today and how do we fix what is broken Can we fix what is broken? I submit to you that we cannot fix what is broken. But God can. So we're going to be looking today at some very, very serious implications of how we got here and hopefully on what can be done as we move forward. But before I do that, I'd like to bring us back to the contemporary scene. And I'm going to read something that was written just yesterday by an modern-day Israeli who happens to be a Christian, a Messianic Jew, living in Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv, Israel, and he writes this. Is it okay to say that I love my country, yet I'm, I'm ashamed of my corrupt government? Is it okay that I am a very patriotic person, yet I detest all that we've turned into? Lord, Will you give our nation another Josiah time of favor before your inevitable judgment? Israel is in its best shape ever economically, not thanks to this government. However, spiritually, it's bankrupted. And he reminds us one of Israel's names in the Bible is Jeshurun. And the below verse is an accurate description of our current state. Listen carefully to what he quotes from Isaiah, or rather Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 15. But Jeshurun, who fat and, wick- and kicked, I believe it's wicked in the original. Jeshurun grew fat and wicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. That was a reference to the nation of Israel, but it applies as well to, I believe, our own nation here as well. So, some of the things we're going to be looking at as we go through these various phases of our study today, the next phase is just a couple of points that I want to make you as a reminder aware of. The first one is that there is a great deal of censorship in our country today that is going on on a regular basis. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, most of the conservative voices are being silenced. That's why This book that I mentioned is so greatly needed for all of us. We will not be silenced. But how can we keep that from happening? They're censoring everything. They're not allowing us to speak the things that we want to speak. In the public square, there is no way that we can communicate the things that we know to be truth the things that we know to be God's will. The other thing that I find that is going on in this nation around us is just as 
disturbing to me, and I hope it is to you. Not only are they censoring everything, but there is Christian persecution that is taking place in the world today and also has begun here in this nation. Next slide. Christian persecution in the U.S. Do you understand? That's what I'm saying. It is already happening. Perhaps you've read the story or heard the story about a man, I believe from Pennsylvania, who led a group of peaceful protesters at an abortion clinic. They were gathered together peacefully, and then police came, and they were dispersed peacefully with the exception of one incident. One of the police officers pushed one of the protesters in the process, but they maintained their peaceful status throughout the whole encounter. The event was publicized. The leader of the group was forced to enter into a criminal justice case against his group. On behalf of his group, he stood to defend what they had done. The charges were brought by the abortion clinic. They did nothing to the abortion clinic. No damage was done, but they brought charges against them. That happened over a year ago. The case was dismissed. Not only was it dismissed in the court, but also there was a public apology by the local police force because they had instigated basically some degree of violence in the process of addressing the problem. Over a year ago, FBI just recently came to that man's home. No warrant, fully armed, multiple FBI agents surrounding the property, demanding that he come out, pounding on their front window and then their front door with weapons drawn. In fact, some of the children were outside and they had FBI agents pointing their guns at the children to hold them at bay. They asked the FBI agents to produce a warrant. They did not have one. They brought the man out of his home, placed him in an FBI vehicle, and drew, drove him to a destination that he was not aware of to interrogate him. The rest of his family was left behind, absolutely unaware of whether or not he would even be able to come back home. Christian persecution is happening in the United States. That should not have happened. And it's not the only case. There are two or three others that I was just recently made aware of that also were events that had taken place a year or a year and a half ago that the FBI now has gotten involved in. And remember, the charges were dropped they were deemed absolutely of no value in terms of prosecution over a year ago, and yet the FBI is now forming a, an investigation against this individual and all those who were with him and using scare tactics. 
There's no legal right for even the FBI to be able to go into somebody's home or take a person prisoner without a warrant. There's no precedent for it, but it is being done. Christian persecution. So again, how did we get here? And what are we to do? We got here because of a plan that has been in place for a very, very long time. In 1984, a former KGB agent of the Soviet Union who had defected from the Soviet Union back in 1970, but in 1984 he was interviewed by an American journalist. The man's name is Yuri Bezmenov. You can look it up on a website, search, and you can find all the information about Yuri Bezmenov that you would need to know. Again, he was a former KGB agent. He was involved in the study of psychological warfare. And in this 1984 interview, he proposed that the Soviet Union had been very much involved in taking our country down. But they realized they wouldn't be able to do it militarily. So they were using psychology. They were using different tactics to demoralize the people of the United States. And that was the very first phase of what he shared in that 1984 interview. Demoralization. Next slide. Yuri indicated that the way to bring this country down, or any country, requires a great deal of time and effort in this area of demoralization. The very first thing that they would look at is religion. Surprise? Well, it makes perfect sense. A religious people are going to have values. A religious people are going to have precepts that they live by. In order to demoralize a country or a people group, you've got to remove their faith. And so, this KGB agent explained that was a process that began long ago. And it does take a long period of many years for it to become a reality. He knew from his own experience because that's what the Bolsheviks did in 1917 and they changed their entire country in just a matter of several years, but it took a long time for them to get to the point where they wanted to get to. Unfortunately for the Soviet Union, they never were able to get to that place. Ultimately, that they had begun, based upon the writings of Karl Marx and others, to pursue that kind of utopia that they thought they could bring themselves into. But the demoralization of the people was a part of it. And he said, it works every single time. And he pointed out several cases where it actually had, indeed, not just in Russia and the you know, remnants of the Soviet Union, but elsewhere around the world. These th processes had been going on everywhere. It takes place over a period of many years. Religious morality is ridiculed. 
replaced by widespread acceptance of our moral values and views. And the freedom to indulge in open sin is encouraged. Does that sound familiar? That's what's happening in our country. Take a look around. Are you aware of what is being accepted these days that was totally anathema just decades ago? Why is that? It's happening for a reason. There is an underlying purpose in all of what's happening in the world today, in this country today. Take a look at what's going on in our education system. Because that's another place where they will hit and have hit in the media. Again, that's another place where they will hit and they have hit. So religion, media, education, all of the above are impacted by this demoralization process that takes many, many years to bring to fulfillment its next phase. But before we get to that next phase, let's take a look specifically at what I mean. Some of you are familiar with what's going on in the public school system. I hope all of you are. It's a mess. The curricula that they are introducing are curricula that excludes God. The worldview is absolutely rejecting anything that has to do with God. Everything. And so it should be no surprise to us that they're introducing many, many things into our educational system. Several years ago, in the 90s, Chuck Smith, a pastor of Calvary Chapel in California and Costa Mesa, was talking in a sermon about the terrible things that were going on in his hometown, where gay pride parades were commonplace in the 90s. And he began to speak in a message back then against drag queen in parades, strutting their stuff. Fast forward a couple of decades and you have drag queens teaching anyone who wants to come in public libraries. Fast forward again another ten years and you find that drag queens are invited into public school systems, into elementary school systems where they can show their stuff to children. Of course, sex education is not new. We've had that around since the late 60s. But look how far it's gone. In one public school system, I believe in New York, they had a couple where the woman and the man were both undressed and she was twerking. I don't want to go into detail about what that means. But it was disgraceful. And it was in a, an auditorium in a public school that they were performing this particular lewdness, accepted by the school system, encouraged by the school system. The books that children are forced to read You've seen many, I think, examples of all of those things that are being spoken against by very concerned parents in public meetings of school boards all across the country. On and on. 
It's getting worse. It's getting very much out of control because they don't want our morality. They want their ah morality. When you begin to accept perceived ideas as your reality, instead of facts, instead of scientific facts, you begin to deviate from what is true to what is what you want it all to be like. The focus of much of the world today is on perception. So we have terms like Gender neutrality. How many genders are there? Over 95, I think, at the last count. What started out with the LGB community, or is it LGT? LGB, well, they've added LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus two. LGBTQA3498. I don't know. There are so many different varieties. I can't keep track of it all. But to keep on adding to the list of things that they endorse and promote, and people just simply accept. How desperately wicked we have become as a people. But it's all because they refuse to accept. What the Bible says so simply and so wonderfully well. God made them male and female. There are two genders. But they encourage all the children of all ages to really give some thought to maybe that they might not be really what they think they are, but maybe they are actually a member of the opposite sex. So five and six-year-old children are given the concept put in their minds that maybe I'm not a boy. After all, I like to play with dolls. So maybe I'm a girl. Well, you know where that leads. It leads to some 80% suicide rates among those who get transformed medically or physically operated on to change their sex to another sex. 80% of them suicidal. And yet they're promoting the drugs to be freely administered without parental consent. Oh, how far we have gone from God's truth. How far we have strayed from what is right. Isaiah said that there would come a day when they would call evil good and good evil. We've arrived. And again, I want to promote a book. I don't normally do this, by the way. I have never, ever stood before anybody in a church setting and said, get this book. But I suggest to you, man, you ought to get this book. Again, we will not be silenced. That is where we need to be. We need to be strong And we need to be firm in our stand against such things. This is evil that we're talking about here, folks. 
But the problem with demoralization, when it is successful, after so many years, it causes a degree of condescension. It causes a sense of, ah, well, this is the way it is and we can't do anything about it. It causes everyone to, instead of standing against these things, to say, oh, well, that's the way it is. And part of the reason that happens is because they want to ridicule, and they do ridicule everyone who stands against what they believe. They ridicule the old ways. They ridicule the things that we have always stood for. And of course, we could say, well, it began when they took prayer out of school. It began perhaps even before then. But it was emphasized, and it was increasing on a regular basis throughout the years so that outdated beliefs in their minds and ideals are no longer valid. And there's an erosion of social norms. Lack of law and order. BLM. Antifa. Defund the police. Those are all activities that are being very well embraced by the radical left. It's a scary thought. But Yuri was right. That's the way to make it work if you have a goal. If that goal is to ruin and destroy, then that's where you start. And it's going to take time, and it has. But I submit to you that that process of demoralization has really already accomplished its purpose. So the next phase that Yuri mentioned in this Communist manifesto was called destabilization. Now, destabilization is something I believe we are already involved in in our nation. We've already come there. It is where you get traditions, traditional morality, no longer restraining the deviant lifestyles. And again, it boils down to this one topic. Are we being a voice that is heard? Apparently not. But we should be. But destabilization takes place when traditional morality no longer restrains deviant lifestyles. We're there. Destabilization takes place when centralized government replaces individual liberties. We're there whether it's the First Amendment or the Second or all of the other constitutional rights and privileges that we have as a people, they're deroding these things. They're taking away from us those freedoms that we have and replacing those freedoms with other freedoms that aren't even in the Constitution, like freedom to choose. You know, when an abortion is considered by any woman, the majority of those women who are considering abortion will hear the phrase, you have a right to control what happens in your body. It's a God-given right, they they won't say God-given, it's a constitutional right. It's not a constitutional right. You can't read that in the U.S. Constitution. It's not there. But they make it sound as though it is a right. Separation of church and state. 
It's in the Constitution. No, it's not. It never has been in the Constitution and it wasn't intended in the way that they say it is to be applied. Actually, Thomas Jefferson was writing to a church talking about the fact that the government should have no power over what takes place in the church. That's what it was for. But they twist that statement that Jefferson made in writing to a church in defense of the fact that he believed, and it was right for him to do so, that the state has no power over the church, and then people today take that letter and they twist its meaning and say, see, separation of church and state. So therefore, there should be no evidence anywhere of a relationship between state and church. That's why we are where we are today. But centralized government is replacing liberal, or rather individual liberties. They're taking them away, slowly but surely. All laws are being passed. We're told that we may soon be unable to speak against those things that we know are sin according to the Word of God. And if we quote the Word of God regarding things like sexuality that they want to be all-inclusive, and the Bible says is limited to just between husband and wife, man and woman, that is grounds for jail time. It's been happening in Europe. It's been happening in Canada. It's coming to a theater near you. I'm okay with that. If I have to proclaim the Word of God in a jail cell, that's what I'll do. If they want to take my tongue, I'll find another means to communicate the gospel truth until they take my life. Are you willing to take that kind of a stand as well? God help us. The introduction of massive massive government programs. Massive government programs. Spend more money. Make more money. $2.2 trillion were invested by the federal government that they did not have to provide money during the COVID pandemic. That was just a start. Much more was pumped into the system. There was no physical dollars involved. It's all digital their understanding of the way things can work and should work in society is the government should have the right to make all the money it wants to make and there should be no consequence. The problem with that, which is a very socialistic idea, is that eventually the government gets so huge and the populace becomes so enslaved to the giving of the government because people like free Right now, there's enough people in the workforce that are able to pump money back into the government to keep it somewhat stable. But that's not going to last. This has been tried over and over again throughout the world. Look at Sweden. Look at Venezuela. Both of them were very prosperous nations. Both of them were leaning toward a very capitalistic approach 
to their economic systems that drove the workforce and benefited many people. And yes, there were abuses. Yes, there was problem. But it worked. They kept people earning income and kept people interested in making things better for themselves. And socialism came along in both of those countries and said, wait a minute, we're going to change things the way we are doing it right now because we believe it'll be better if the government controls all of that which you have been so wonderfully blessed by. So we're going to take away some of those things that you enjoy. We're going to tax you more, but we're going to give you more. And the more we give, the more you're going to appreciate the larger government. It works very well until the people condescend to the idea that, hey, this isn't bad. I'm getting free health care. I'm getting all kinds of freebies that I wasn't able to have an experience under the old system. But there comes a point where there's not enough money that the people are earning and there's not enough incentive for the people to do better and that collapses the government. Eventually, that's what happened in Sweden. They've begun to move back to a capitalistic approach because they realized finally that it was not a good idea to go into such a social extreme as they had. Venezuela is still squandering in their mess that they created. Inflation has gone skyrocketing through the roof. Very similar to what happened in Nazi Germany in 1938. The German mark was worth something in the 30s. They were a prosperous people. But the government changed things. And the more the government took controls, the less power the German mark had in terms of buying power. There was a story that I read recently that talking about a woman who had saved up 10,000 marks. And she gave it in 1939 to a Christian organization. She said, I've saved this money up. I want you to use it to benefit the ministry that you are working in. The head of that ministry had to tell that woman, you've come a month too late. If you had come a month ago, we could have used that money. But in just one month's time, 10 million marks will barely buy food for your table. That money is worthless. You see where they're going? You know where they went? You know what was happening in Sweden? They woke up. Venezuela hasn't woken up to this yet, but I hope they do. I hope we recognize that that's the direction we are headed and it will be a mess if we end up like them. Regulations on religious institutions coming to a theater near you. No tolerance for anyone dissenting from that which they proclaim as being right. Even though it is wrong. Expulsion, social, social chastisement for anyone who speaks against the accepted norm. If you're doing anything on Facebook, talking about such things, they've got your number. Just keep that in mind, people. It is actually happening. It's not just famous people who are being ridiculed. They're going after the individual. They're going after you and me. So, demoralization took place 
already. We are already at a place of destabilization. I believe we've arrived. The next step, Yuri tells us, in this process of destroying a people, is simply referred to as a crisis. That which causes the boiling point. It's short-lived. There can be many different means by which this crisis can come about. It might be through war. It might be through some pestilence. COVID. Or whatever's coming next. Ebola's on the rise. Did you know that? They are already saying this is the next pandemic. It's a strain of Ebola that hasn't been around for many, many years. We'll see. Could be anything else. But it's short-lived because it's not necessary that it lasts long. It's only there for a purpose. And it will happen here, I believe, if we don't do something. A crisis will indeed take us down. That's the goal. The extreme left is on a mission. They are Marxist. They've read the book. They know what they're doing. Now, whether it's through revolution or some other means, a crisis will come. And the purpose of that goal that they have is to take that crisis and change the power system as a result of the crisis. That way they can have an effective establishment of their tyrannical government that they want in place. Now that government is going to be a government that will provide every need. It'll be wonderful. You'll be happy. You won't own anything, but you'll be happy. That's what takes place after the crisis. They'll convince you that normalization, societal change was necessary. And the population gives up under that pressure from those threats who are in power, of those who are in power. Do it our way or get out of the way. That's their approach. That's their goal. It will happen if we let it. There will be an appearance of peace disguising that tyranny. And again, as I mentioned just a moment ago, which was really a quote from the leader of the World Economic Forum, you will own nothing and be happy. Why is this all happening? Well, I suggest the primary reason is a spiritual one. And you've had demoralization, you've seen destabilization, we are about to experience a crisis situation which may end up causing everything to collapse as they want it to. And according to Yuri Bezmenov, that's the plan. That's their goal. But what's behind it? If you look at the things that we've discussed here today, there should be a common thread that you will see as we move forward, Satan, I believe, is indeed the source of all of these. It wasn't just Karl Marx. It wasn't just Lenin and others who believed in those philosophies. There was a spiritual push behind it all. 
Satan uses those same very tactics. Bible truths are under assault. Agree? Yes. Demoralization is taking place. Satan is behind it. Teachings are limited to only that which is accepted. Sound familiar? Not happening here. But take a look around. There are many who call themselves Christians, who are attending churches who call themselves Christian churches, who are listening to pastors who call themselves Christian pastors. And they're teaching people those kinds of things that we were just talking about in their churches. I saw a video clip of a Methodist priest standing before his congregation with two children seated at the altar and a drag queen standing next to him. And he was quoting Scripture. And he was saying, this Scripture means this. He talked about the fact that we are to renew our minds. And he said, the renewing of our minds includes our acceptance of people like this person next to me. Acceptance of drag queens in the church? You got it. It's there. Teachings are limited to only what is accepted. They're going to say, yes, that is good stuff. Teach it, brother. Love your neighbor. Absolutely right. That's destabilization. And then the church becomes complacent. Oh, well, you can't stop it. It's happening all around us. It's not just in society that we're saying that. It's in the churches that we're saying that. We're sitting in pews saying, eh, it's not affecting me here. So what if it's happening in Pennsylvania or California? It's not happening here. Who says it's not happening here? Think about it. If we get to that place where we allow those things to happen, we've reached a crisis in the church. And Satan wins. And then the last step, as far as Satan is concerned, this is his goal, normalization. The church becomes one with no, and no longer speaks against the new world order. That's his goal. Global unity at any cost. What are we to do? Solution. We have a solution. It's called the Word of God. Ephesians 6.10-18 talks about putting on the whole armor of God. The very first thing that we must need to always remember is that we should never start any day without the armor of God upon us. I pray that each one of us will pray that prayer every morning when we awaken. Oh God, help me to put on your armor because it's needed today to defend myself against the wiles of the enemy. And I want to take that shield of faith that you've provided to quench the fiery darts that he sends in my direction. I want the helmet of my salvation to cover me, to keep me from being infiltrated in my mind by all those things that I know are going on in the world around me. I want that breastplate of righteousness that will show others who I am and who I belong to. I want my feet to be shod with a gospel of truth and my belt around my loins for protection, for guidance. We need His armor. And then we're told we should be singing praise to our God. Well, it's kind of hard to sing praises to our God when everything around us is falling apart, isn't it? 
But that's precisely what we should be doing. I'd like to read a passage just quickly from Psalm 111. David wrote this psalm. He says, Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endures forever. He has made His wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant. This is praise to our God for His bountiful provision to protect and guide and help in times of need. And people of God, we need that kind of prayer in the church. We need praise to our God. We need people coming together. We're told in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, that we are not to forsake the coming together of ourselves in the assembly, as the psalmist wrote, in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation, I will praise the Lord. And that's the purpose of our coming together, to lift our voices in praise to our God, to know that He hears and is pleased with us when we offer our praise to Him. So that's paramount. That's important. And then the other thing that we want to make sure that we understand and do is bear one another's burdens, according to Galatians 6.2. If we bear one another's burdens, we are doing body ministry. We are helping each other out. We're supporting each other in our strengths, in our weaknesses. We come together and we form a united front against evil. That's why we are to be doing what we are told to do in the Word of God. Pray without ceasing, he tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.17. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. Prove all things. Listen, people. The Word of God is rich. And it is for our benefit that we know His Word and that we seek to know Him more and to be led by His Spirit, filled with His Spirit, and to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is what we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's where we need to be. We need to stand firm in these various things that we're looking at here in this passage that teaches us what it is that God's will is for us in these last days. And then we're to know His promises that He has given. The promises of God are yes and amen, the Bible tells us. They're true. They are real. They are certain. They are worthy of our acceptance. The promises. What are the promises? There are so many. But I've listed just a few here. I want you to take take. take careful note of what I put here and may it be that these things will help us to stand against those things that the enemy is trying to propagate in the world around us so that we might be a true voice against what he is doing against what the radical left are doing against what Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are doing against that which is against truth and righteousness first thing he says is be of good cheer Jesus speaking, John chapter 16, Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That's a good place to start. Know who is the victor in all of this. It is Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. 
Praise be to God for all that He has done, for all that He has revealed to us as His people. Praise to our God for the help that He provides us to stand firm in these last hours. But not only has He overcome, He tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, that we are also overcomers. He who believes in Jesus Christ is an overcomer. That means you and me. That means all who have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. That means that we have the victory. He wins the battle. We just stand and see the salvation that He provides. We are overcomers. Not only that, but we are more than conquerors. Chapter 8, verse 37 of Romans. We are more than conquerors. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul and one of my favorite verses, if God be for us, who can be against us? You are an overcomer. Yes, you're more than a conqueror. How can that be? Because He's already done the work. He's already won the victory. He's already set the captives free. He's already redeemed you. He's already saved you. He's already delivered you. Because He loves you. John also wrote in 1 John chapter 4 these wonderful words of promise. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who is he referring to? The Spirit of God dwelling in every believer. That is what God's Word declares. You have the Spirit of God if you have accepted Christ as your Savior and He is in you and there's nothing the enemy can do to change that. There's nothing the enemy can do to thwart the power of the Holy Spirit to protect and guide and instruct and comfort and strengthen and teach every believer. Lastly, Jesus' own words when He was speaking to His disciples, when Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded to Peter and said, Son of God? That's good, Peter. You know, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. And then he goes on to say, And upon this rock, that foundation, that solid rock, which is Christ, upon this rock I will build my church. It's the first use of the word church in the New Testament. Spoken by Jesus. The church hadn't even come into existence then. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the solution. We are the church. We're only a few. But we are the church. And we can make a difference. Because we will not be silenced. Amen.